we can have a little Hebrew lesson here. When the Master Yeshua was walking into the city, or um, coming in on the donkey, then they were shouting a couple of things. And it's very telling what they were shouting. Maybe in our culture we don't, we don't really understand the full implications of it. It's in chapter 21, verse 5. I just have to check something with this. Um, by the way, did any of you see Economist's uh, fan page on Facebook that got uh, set up this last week? We posted, we got the Hanukkah musical, we got it all, uh, we got it all um, produced as a video, and we posted it on there. So check, check that out if you didn't get to see it or if you want to watch it, uh, the recording of it. It's pretty nice. So in chapter 21, they're shouting a couple things in verse 9. They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And you know, sometimes we just have this image of little children like running around with palm branches and it's really happy, you know. But those were very, very charged words in their culture. That was like a bombshell. Because firstly, the son of David, in Hebrew is Ben David, that's the title for the Messiah, for the King Messiah. In other words, the crowds of Jerusalem were welcoming this prophet from the Galil, and they were saying, this is the King of Israel. This is the rightful um, heir to the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. That's what Ben David means, and they were calling him that. Um, these other, uh, other references are from Psalm 118. It's a very famous psalm because it's the last of a famous set of six psalms. Psalm 113 to 118 are called the Hallel. Can everybody say Hallel? You know that from Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What, what does Hallel mean? Anyone want to take a guess? Praise, that's right. These are like the classic praise songs. And they were traditionally sung every morning during the festival of Passover, the seven days of Passover in the spring, and the festival of Booths, Tabernacles, Sukkot in the fall. So these were very deeply ingrained in the minds of the people. And in Psalm 118, it's, uh, it's traditionally understood as the coronation psalm. This is the psalm that was written for David's coronation, that was sung during his coronation. And it's interesting how this coronation psalm pops up when Yeshua rides the donkey, of whom it is said, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey. When Yeshua comes in, this is what they're shouting. So it's an extremely charged moment. And I guarantee you, everybody in the city of Jerusalem knew about it. It was really making waves. They were, uh, they were shouting from Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this is interesting. Do you know how you say welcome in Hebrew? Chaim, maybe you could tell us. Baruch Haba. Baruch Haba, which translated in English mean, is welcome, right? Or what does it literally mean? Blessed is he who comes. <laughs> so in other words, they were saying welcome. Baruch Haba, blessed is he who comes. But they were recognizing that he didn't just come in his own name. He came in the name of his father. He was authorized by the God of Israel. And uh, finally, they were shouting... Hoshana! That's how you say it in Hebrew. We say Hosanna. In Hebrew, it's actually Hoshana. And it's two words. Does anybody know what it means? Please deliver us. Please save us. That's correct. The Hebrew word for, uh, for please, but also kind of in a desperate sense, like please right now, 
is nah. Can everybody say nah? Nah. So remember that next time. Use that in a conversation when you want to ask someone to do something, but you're kind of desperate. <laughs> um, nah. And hosha is save or deliver. So hosha nah is like, please save us right now. We are desperate for your deliverance. Can we say that together? Hoshana. Hoshana. So it's, it's another one of those great one-word prayers that you can use in your liturgy. <laughs> I use the word liturgy humorously here, right? In your personal prayer time, it's like if you're about to go off the highway, that's a good one-word prayer. Hoshana! <laughs> Help! <laughs> Please save me <laughs> right now. <laughs> so I know I've prayed some one-word prayers like that on the highway before. Maybe some, some of you have also. So that's what Hoshana means. There's also a kind of a more uh, formal usage of it. Hoshia na. That's another one used. Hoshia na. So you can say Hoshana or you can say Hoshia na. But that's what these people were shouting to Yeshua. And uh, interestingly, that's what he came to do. He came to take the throne, but the route to glory was a route of suffering. The route to receiving the crown from the hand of the Father in the heavens was first receiving a crown of thorns and, and drinking the cup of pain on behalf of his bride. And uh, Yeshua had that in mind when he came into the city. There's a really interesting connection between this parasha, which is the Torah portion we read about Joseph, and then this passage. And it has to do with the transfer of power. In the Torah, we read the first chapter about Joseph's ascendancy to the throne after a period of suffering, much like Yeshua had to go through to get to the throne. And at the end of it, Judah and his brothers, i.e. the Jewish people, we'll say loosely, Judah and his brothers, the Jewish people, were exiled from the land of Israel in a time of a crisis. And they went down to Egypt, they went into exile, and there they encountered Joseph, their brother. They had the same God, but they didn't recognize him. And I mean, this story is packed with with symbolic meaning, not only regarding the past, but also for the future. But here's one very interesting similarity between these parallels. Here we have Judah and his brothers. They, they go out of the land of Israel in exile, and they encounter Joseph. And there's something of a transfer of power. Um, Judah was more the family leader before this. He called the shots. And uh, when they went down to Joseph, there was this transfer of power. After that, Joseph became more of the leader of the family. He had received the birthright, we read in Chronicles, and that was the point where he really assumed that leadership. And we see something very similar in this Matthew passage. Yeshua tells this story about farmers. I mean, you have a bunch of blue-collar workers in the audience, and so he's talking on their level. He tells a story about farmers. He tells a story about sharecroppers and uh, how, they, how they, uh, they keep on rejecting the servants that the owner of the vineyard sends to them. And finally, the guy sends his son, and they kill the son. And Yeshua concludes this story, which was a major jab in the side of the Judean leadership by, by quoting from this coronation psalm, Psalm 118. Haven't you ever read? They sang that psalm that morning. They sang that psalm every morning for, for Passover. Haven't you ever read the stone the builders rejected? I'll, I'll share something very fascinating with you from Jewish tradition. In the Second Temple era, it was believed that David had suspect ancestry. His brothers thought that he may have been born of, born of an illegitimate relationship. And uh, that's why when his father called his sons 
for Samuel to investigate for who might be the, the, the monarch of Israel, he didn't even bother calling David because David's ancestry was suspect. And this is just Jewish tradition. But Jewish tradition says that when, when they brought David and when Samuel anointed David to be king, surprise, surprise, no one expected that, then his brothers all said, the stone which the builders rejected, this one became the chief cornerstone. It, it, that, that was just Jewish tradition from Yeshua's time. But the interesting thing is, Yeshua's ancestry was suspect. Because he was born before Joseph and Mary were married. Um, there were some rumors floating around about his ancestry. And it was the exact same story. Just like King David, so it happened with Yeshua, the son of David. So, I mean, this, this will, like, you kind of have to get in the mindset of these people to understand what a charged scenario this was. And uh, how this totally pointed to the king of Israel and his arrival. And how does he conclude his little, uh, his little talk to these guys at the end of chapter 21? He says, Therefore the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from me. There's going to be a transfer of power. And it's going to be given to a people producing the fruit of it. Now, you know, traditional Christian theology at times, because it's sometimes been a little bit anti-Semitic, or based on replacement theology, it sometimes it said, See, God threw the Jewish people away. No more Israel, they're done. And now it's about Christianity in the church. And unfortunately, that was, that's what we call anachronistic theology. That's um, taking the present situation and reading it into the biblical text. But we, we don't do that. If we, if we just want to read this on a very simple level, Yeshua is talking about a transfer of power from the Sanhedrin, from the Jewish religious establishment, a transfer from them to his apostles, who also happened to be Jewish, who also happened to be a sect of Judaism, and they continued to practice it. So we see that there wasn't this massive shift like we sometimes read into the text. God continued to love his people Israel. They continued to have a part in his great plan, although the plan did get significantly larger from that point on. And we're going to read a couple of verses about that in a minute. Now, here's an interesting little insight. Why did Yeshua specifically use the word fruit? These people would be characterized who are receiving the kingdom transfer of power by producing fruit. Now, we're going to scroll back to the Joseph story. We're kind of going back and forth here, right? So you have to track with me. We go back to the Joseph story. There was a transfer of power from Judah, who represents the Jewish people, let's say, to Joseph, who represents, often he represents non-Jewish believers in Messiah. Because sometimes they look a little more Egyptian. Maybe they have Egyptian makeup on. Maybe they have shaved head or shaved faces. And they just don't look like your typical son of Israel. But who is their God? Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is their God. Just like Joseph. And uh, they're part of the family. And there's, you know, the equal, equal covenant rights, etc. And who was Joseph's son who received the double portion of blessing? Ephraim. What does Ephraim's name mean? Doubly fruitful. So in the parsha we read about a transfer of power from Judah to Joseph, whose son was named really fruitful. In other words, this Joseph thing is all about fruitfulness. And in this Matthew passage, we read about a transfer of power from the Sanhedrin to Yeshua's movement, who were characterized by being very fruitful. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Proliferate abundantly in all the earth. Take over the king, like the world for God, basically, in God's kingdom. This, 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 I, I, I love the dynamic of that. It's a really neat parallel. So, just wanted to 
point out that connection between the two. I love, I love finding those connections. One more uh, observation from the New Covenant passage in chapter 22, verse 29. Yeshua has a word for the Sadducees, a very strong word. He says, you're mistaken for two reasons. I'm paraphrasing. You don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand God's power. Those are two major errors. To not understand the scriptures and to not understand God's power. He goes on to refute their whole uh, denial of the resurrection. You remember last week I transformed into a Sadducee. I was Hananiah the Sadducee. And you proved to me from the Torah that the resurrection was going to happen. So kind of fun to continue on with that theme. But uh, what's interesting is... Yeshua's uh, relationship with the sect of the Sadducees as compared to his relationship with the sect of the Pharisees. It was a different relationship. Here's an interesting fact. Pharisees only ate with other Pharisees. You had to be on their level of, of, of observance of the Torah in order to be able to be invited to dinner with the Pharisee. You had to be extremely scrupulous in your observance of the Father's word. Did you notice that there were several instances when Pharisees invited Yeshua over for dinner? What does that tell us about Yeshua and his level of observance of God's word? Yes. What does it tell us about his hermeneutic, the way he interpreted the Torah? What it tells us is on a practical level, Yeshua was a Pharisee. What it tells us is that on a hermeneutical level, in terms of how he interpreted the Torah and applied it, Yeshua was essentially a Pharisee. And some of you might be like, wait a minute here, the Pharisees are the bad guys, how dare you? I, I'm not going to make Yeshua out to be a Pharisee, because we, we don't make him in our image, he makes us in his image, doesn't he? There were definitely areas where Yeshua did take major issue with the Pharisees. But his words for the Pharisees were different than his words for the Sadducees. He never told them, you don't understand God's power, and you don't understand the scriptures. What he did tell them is, quit adding to the written word of God with traditions, and cut the hypocrisy. Those were, his, those were his choice words for the Pharisees. And uh, it's, it's notable to remember that, because Yeshua had a lot in common with the Pharisees, and we have actually, as believers, received several very central tenets of doctrine from them, like the resurrection of the dead, like the concept of blessing God before we eat. That's a Pharisaical tradition. That's not in the Scriptures. It's not commanded in the Torah. The Sadducees would say, oh, we don't bless God before we eat, because that's not in the Torah. That's, that's, that's just a tradition of them. But it's a good tradition. The master practiced it. But it was also known as a Pharisaical one. So it's, it's something to remember as we're uh, discovering in many ways the Torah for the first time, as we're digging deep in it. So just remember that. Yeshua's relationship with the Sadducees, Yeshua's relationship with the Pharisees. I say that to you too because in the Messianic world, there's kind of, there's something of a debate going on. On the one hand, you have uh, Orthodox Judaism, which is more rabbinical and it's more descended from the Pharisees. And sure enough, today, they still have the same issues with adding to the written word of God. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have a movement called the Karaites. And the Karaites are more like modern day Sadducees. They adhere only to the written word. And if you can't find it in the written word, it's bad. And the result of some people kind of going with the Karaite flavor is they're beginning to push away some of the things that Yeshua didn't push away and that the early Jewish believers didn't push away. You know, I just mentioned an example. Blessing God before you eat, that's, that's not written in the Word. But it's a good thing. 
um, doing the traditional Passover Seder with the cups. We're not commanded to do it that way in the Torah. But Yeshua did. It's a good thing. Those are a couple examples. There are lots of other ones. So that, some of that might be over some of your heads, but it's kind of this big, big ongoing discussion in the Messianic movement. And I wanted to at least touch on that today. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's go back to the Parsha now, and I'm going to point out a couple things from it also. So it's uh, Genesis chapter 41, verse 1. Can anyone remember what the name of this Parsha is? In Hebrew? Miketz. What does Miketz mean? At the end. It basically means at the end. Kates means end. Everybody say Kates. Great. Maybe you've heard, uh, met some Jewish people with the last name of Kates or Katesman. Katz, Katzman. It's the same, same idea. There's a really interesting connection between the name of this parasha. It says, now it happened at the end, at the Kates, of two full years. The Hebrew there is a shnatayim yamim. It means like exactly two years to the day. It happened at exactly two years to the day that Pharaoh had a dream and these things began happening. The story began unfolding. And there's another interesting usage of the word kates a couple of verses later. And this is fascinating. This is going to be kind of a deep thing, okay? So track with me for a second here. We're going to go deep. In uh, chapter 41, verse 8, it uses the word again, but it uses it in a different way. 41, verse 8, verse... Where is it? Read up, fell asleep. The Jewish and the Christian Bible verse system in here is different, so I, I just lost myself because I wrote it in the one, and now I'm looking in my other one. It says when Pharaoh, okay, there it is, at the end of verse 4, it says Pharaoh awoke. Then Pharaoh awoke. The Hebrew word there, awoke, is the same root as the word for end. Then Pharaoh kaitzed. Vaikatz paro, is how it says in Hebrew. What's the connection? There's a connection between the end and waking up, an awakening. Now this is interesting. We have to track here for a second because there's something about today and something about the near future in here. It says that at the end of two full years. Now, you know, sometimes when you have numbers in the word, you can play with them a little bit. They have multiple layers of meaning. Two years could also maybe have a hint of two millennia, 2,000 years. There might be a hint here saying that at the end of 2,000 years, at the end of two millennia, there will be an awakening. There's kind of this connection in Hebrew that could mean that. It could be at the end of that time, there's an awakening, and uh, people really wake up. I, I think that's happening. I think it's going to happen to a tremendous degree right before Messiah comes back. Because uh, Yeshua talked about how before he returns, Elijah is going to happen, whatever that is, and there's going to be a great restoration of God's people to that which we fell away from, to that which we lost, whatever, and we are going to wake up as a bride to the fact that our bridegroom purchased us with his blood, and he deserves our full loyalty, and he's coming for us really soon. There's going to be that awakening. And we, we see that connection in this parasha. Charlotte. Not that I'm aware of. Um, have you, Chaim, received your encounter? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. So yeah, it could be in there like that. 
Kids, Olam is end of the world. You know the word Olam. You want to flip the slide on there? Here's a, here's a slide from Loving Way uh, United Pentecostal Church in Denver. This happened last year, or a couple years ago, when the Passion for the Christ movie came out. It says, Jews killed the Lord Jesus, and it has a reference there. This caused a firestorm of controversy. Um, the, the denomination that this church belonged to like flatly renounced it. They said, we had nothing to do with this. This was unauthorized. The pastor, they ended up posting an apology on the billboard, and the pastor ended up resigning. It wasn't a good end. But this is a picture of a common misconception that has kind of floated around in the church for a long time. And thankfully, in the last 50 or 100 years, it's really began to breathe its last. There are more and more people realizing it's stupid to blame the Jewish people for killing Jesus. For quite a few different reasons. It's also historically inconsistent. Um, I actually, I really appreciated the, this denomination's official response to this. They said, we believe that all humanity was responsible for the death of the Savior. He did not, he wasn't killed, he wasn't forced to go to the cross. He willingly chose to go. And it was in the plan of God. So we're all aware of that. Hannah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the Sanhedrin would have done it if they could have. They just weren't authorized legally to um, execute people. But So yes, there was complicity on both sides and massive injustice on both sides. And of course, it was all part of the Father's big plan, just like Joseph's story and all of the mess that happened and the injustice, and it was all part of the Father's big plan also. So anyway, I just wanted to have that for the backdrop for an interesting observation here that sometimes I think kind of escapes your notice. Um, it has to do with Reuben. Reuben. He was the oldest son. He had, a, he had a real position of influence in Jacob's family. Um, everybody thought he was slated to become the next leader of the tribe. Uh, everybody thought he'd have the birthright. Turned out he didn't. But in chapter 42, verse 22, we read, Reuben answered them saying, Didn't I tell you don't sin against the boy? And you wouldn't listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. And this is, a, this is a picture, I believe, of Yeshua's res, uh, rejection also. And it, it just, it's, it's, it's very simple. Everybody didn't want to reject Joseph and Jacob's family. And in Yeshua's time, everybody didn't want to reject him either. There was a Reuben element, even in the Sanhedrin. Uh, we read about Yosef of Ramatayim, Joseph of Arimathea. Arimith and in chapter 23, verse 50, in the book of Luke, we read a man named Yosef, interesting name, by the way, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man. He was a tzaddik. He had not consented to their plan and action. So even in the Sanhedrin, there were, there were people who did not consent to their plan, and they did not approve of the actions that they went ahead with. There's, there's always been a Reuben in the Jewish people. There's always been a Reuben who said, don't... That, 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 that I advocated justice, and that maybe even believed in Yeshua. And uh, there's certainly, I think, a strong element today. So, you know, 
the, the, there's kind of like, I'm a biblical Hebrew teacher, and I, I love showing people how the Torah, even in the, the very letters of the Torah, and down on like an individual word level, it points to Messiah. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The Aleph and the Tav, the Alpha and the Omega word that pops up and that points to Messiah. It's just phenomenal. And often when my students see this, they say, well, how could the Jewish people reject Yeshua? How, how could they have done that? And I say, they didn't. Who believed in Yeshua for the first couple decades? Nobody but Jews. This was a Jewish thing. <laughs> However, there was an unbelieving sector of the Jewish people. Maybe they were ultra-religious, just like you have people today. Maybe they didn't believe in God to begin with. Um, and they didn't believe in him. But that's always been the case. So you can't just say, well, the Jewish people rejected Jesus, because it's never been the case. Um, there have always been Jewish people who have believed in Yeshua, Messianic Jews. And there's definitely been a massive upsurge, a groundswell of that um, since the 60s. And we're part of that here in Prince Albert as a Messianic Jewish congregation. And I, I, I praise God for that. So there have always been Rubens. There's actually uh, there's an interesting series of videos on YouTube of a rabbi named Simcha Perlmutter. Write that down, Simcha Perlmutter. And uh, he talks for at least an hour, I think. It's a series of videos. He's an Orthodox rabbi who does believe in Yeshua. And he has some interesting things to say about Orthodox Jewish people and, and what they think of Yeshua and how there are secret believers, just like there was in, in the beginning, there still is today. It's, it, it's exciting. And I think that's going somewhere also. So uh, we want to continue with that theme. In chapter 42, verse 8, it says that Yosef had recognized his brothers, although they didn't recognize him. There's a picture of someone with a blindfold on. And he looks like he, he, looks like he, knows, he, he knows what he's doing. He looks like he thinks he can see. And so here's another interesting fact. There was a reason that Joseph's brothers were blinded to him for a time. And along the same lines, Paul taught in Romans 9 to 11 that there's a reason that hardness has come upon part of Israel for a time. This is part of God's big plan. But it's not the end. There was a time, and we're going to read about it next Shabbat, when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. And it was fantastic. And there's also going to be a time when Yeshua, the son of Joseph, Mashiach ben David, reveals himself to his brothers. And it's going to be equally glorious. And I'm really excited about that. It's part of God's massive plan. And I really hope that we get to see it in our generation. And I really believe that that's one reason that this congregation exists. Because there is going to be a time when Jewish people come to embrace Yeshua, our Jewish Messiah, who was, who was and will forever be a Torah-loving Jewish rabbi. We could even say that. And when they come to him, where are they going to go? They're going to start coming to Messianic congregations like this. Because this is home. And it's, that's something I'm excited about. So hopefully that will give you some vision for where we're coming from and where we're going. This is, the, this is a prophetic move of God. I want to flip to the next one. Okay, so uh, there's this word that comes up in the parasha, and it's a word that Paul was really in touch with. It's kind of this Hebrew word that has a lot of emotion to it, and I want to teach it to you today. This is going to be fun. In uh, chapter 44, verse 7 of the parasha, the uh, Joseph servant, he catches up with the brothers, the... Uh, they have the money in their sacks, and Joseph has the cup. 
unbeknownst to them. And Joseph's servant catches up to them, it says in verse 6, so he overtook them and spoke these words to them. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. The Hebrew word there for far be it is khalilah. Can we all say khalilah? Khalilah. It's like this big Hebrew word that means more than far be it. Chaim, what's kind of the connotation of khalilah? God forbid. What else? Never. Yeah. It can almost, can it even have to do with like, like whole, like profanity or blasphemy almost? Like I've read that too. It's, it's almost like you are blaspheming and saying that like profanity. I can't even listen. Far be it from you, right? It's, it's this really charged word. It's, a, it's like how you react to something that's just crazy. That's Khalilah. And it, it, the, the brothers say this in response to Joseph's servants. And uh, we'll read another instance where it pops up in verse 16. Chapter 44, verse uh, oh, verse 17. 44, 17, if you have an English Bible. But he said, okay, I'll read verse 16 to you. So Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But Joseph said, Khalilah, far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So we hear this on both sides. Joseph says, Khalilah, far be it from me that I would take you all as slaves. That's not just. I'm only going to take the guy who stole the cup. Genevieve. He, it, it says he was speaking Egyptian, and they had a translator between them, so he wouldn't be being that. So they kind of translate the word into the text. Yeah. So uh, this is interesting because we have to remember that Paul, his Hebrew name was Shaul, and he always had a Hebrew name, and he always had a, uh, a Greek name. That's the way it was in Jew the Jewish world then. That's how it still is. If you meet a Jewish person, and they have like a, you know, a Gentile name or whatever, ask them what their Hebrew name is. They all have Hebrew names also. Yeah, there you go, cool. So there are lots of examples of that. And, uh, yeah, so anyway, Paul, right? So he, he, he had the same example. You have to realize this guy grew up, like, in an intensely Jewish world, studying the Torah, memorizing the whole thing from start to finish. And these, these were the words that he would think in. These were the words that would, that would flare up in his heart first thing, because Hebrew was his mother tongue. And, I want to give you a couple of examples of where this word flares up in the soul of Paul when he's writing his letter to the believers in Rome, which was a mixed congregation of Jews and, and Gentiles. So let's read a couple examples of this. So we have five examples, and then we're going to hear from uh, Chaim and Mercy shortly thereafter. Let's read this first one together. Romans chapter 3, verse 31, he says, Do we then nullify the Torah through faith? Chalilah! On the contrary, we established the Torah. So, okay, you have to realize, Paul is writing and addressing some specific misconceptions, some erroneous thoughts that were floating around that people are propagating. And what he does is he'll ask a question from the side, and then he'll react, and he'll say, Chalilah, and then he'll give the truth. And here's an example. Some people were saying that faith nullifies the Torah. You cannot be a person of faith and also continue to observe God's word. Well, of course that's not true. 
You know, we know very well that faith and works are very good friends. They go hand in hand. You can't have true faith or true works without the other. Paul knew that too. And so he says, our faith in the Messiah leads us to can affirm God's Torah and the authority of his word in our lives. Let's read the next one together from Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Hallelujah! <laughs> Again, here's Paul reacting. He's saying, just because you have grace doesn't mean you can get sloppy. It doesn't mean you can go do whatever you want. God's grace leads us to repentance, to get right with Him, to, uh, to live lives that are in accordance with the dictates of His Word. And of course, for Paul, you know, Paul's Bible was the Hebrew Bible, and his definition of sin, therefore, contextually, was whatever the Hebrew Bible says is right or wrong. So that's what he's talking about there. That actually... That verse flies in the face of some of the kind of hyper-grace things that are floating around today. We kind of say, well, we have grace so we can do whatever we want. And of course, that's not true. Next verse, Romans chapter 7. Therefore, the Torah indeed is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did then that which is good become death to me? Hallelujah! For we know that the Torah is spiritual. So uh, Paul in this chapter is talking about the, the role that God's law has to play in the life of a believer. And he's saying that it does have a place to play. God's law is, it's holy. It always has been and it always will be. The commandments in God's law, we're talking contextually here. These are the commandments of the Torah he's talking about. The three things, they're holy, they're righteous, and they're good. Now this is interesting because quite often today when I hear about people talking about some of the commandments in the Torah, Let's say some of the stuff from Leviticus, and we're not sure how it applies to us today. They often talk about it like, one, it's not holy, two, it is not righteous, and three, it is not good. And that kind of concerns me, because when we take that approach, we are getting out of touch with Paul and his attitude toward the Word of God. So let's always remember that everything in the Torah is three things. It's holy, it's righteous, and it's good. And uh, we'll, we'll just go back to that. And how, so how, what is it specifically does it react to? He says, so, uh, you know, I, I have this experience where I read God's Word, and I realize that something is wrong, and then there's this big inner battle, and I end up doing it more, and I'm out of control. What? Does that make God's Word bad? Because it produces this in me? No. God's Word is showing me how bad sin is in my life. And then Romans chapter 7 ends by saying, Who can rescue me? God can. Praise His name. There's no condemnation. <laughs> we live by the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to live according to the requirements of His law, etc. So I really like how he concludes this thought too. The Torah is spiritual. It's not just a bunch of external regulations, earthly rules, stuff like that. There's something deeply spiritual about it. And that's the heart of it. That's what we're looking for as we read it. Right? We're not getting hung up with uh, the external stuff, although it's important. We're going to the heart. Let's read the next verse. I ask then, did God reject his people? Hallelujah! This is Romans chapter 9 to 11. He goes into depth about God's relationship with the Jewish people and the big plan. And uh, that's what Paul has to say. God didn't reject the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and he still hasn't. And the last one. I ask then, did they stumble that they might fall? Hallelujah! 
But by their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. So again, he's talking about the strategy of this whole thing, the, uh, this transfer of power, we'll say, the interplay. And uh, he says the Jewish people did not stumble so as to fall. In other words, they're not out of the game for good. They are not down for the count. God still has a plan for the people of Israel, and it is going to be powerful. And we have yet to have seen the fullness of it manifest in his, uh, in his great plan that's going to culminate in the return of Messiah. So let's remember that. And uh, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up with that, actually. We'll leave that for another time. I had, I had a humorous comment to make about Joseph and how he had a cup that he supposedly used to divine from. Of course, he didn't divine from the cup, right? But he looked like an ultra-spiritual guy. He didn't look like kind of the traditional Jewish spirituality. But he had a connection with God. And uh, my point with that is, you know, Joseph had a cup, and it was a very spiritual cup, and it was kind of a cup that he would have his spiritual experiences over. And I don't know if you noticed this, but there are a lot of Canadians today who go to church even more than once a week, and their church is Tim Hortons. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So let's. Uh, <laughs> is that good or bad? I don't know. What? Yeah. Is that good or bad? Well, you know, like if you go to Tim Hortons and get your coffee and you meet with other believers there, and maybe you can, like, you know, be a light, that's cool. Sometimes over a cup of coffee, you really spend time, time with God. That can be. I do coffee with Jesus every morning. <laughs> Okay, and uh, the last thing, go ahead one more. Foot washing. When Judah and his brothers came into Joseph's house, what, did, what was done for them? Their feet were washed. What did Yeshua call us to do for his people? Wash their feet. If, if we identify, let's say, with Joseph, believers from the nations, then what is our ultimate mission? What is something very important in our job description? To be servants, that's right down. To wash the feet of Judah and his brothers, the Jewish people. And again, that's part of the mission statement of our congregation, to serve the Jewish people. So, thank you. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.